past couple weeks, we've witnessed quite a bit of tragedy uh, in, in our area. We, we think of the accident that, that happened this past week, and taking the lives of 13 seniors coming back from a church retreat. Um, things like this leave us with a lot of questions. Um, the pain that uh, some of you experience in your own life leaves you with a lot of questions. How can a good God allow these things? This has been called the rock of atheism or the Achilles heel of, of theism or, or uh, of the Christian God. And, and it goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, then he's able to stop evil and suffering. And if God is good, then he would want to stop evil and suffering. But if evil exists then a God that's all good and all powerful must not. And so atheists have made this argument um, and Christians have responded to this argument with ways that God God indeed does bring good even out of suffering and, and hardship. But in reality, the problem of evil and suffering doesn't point away from God. In reality, it points toward God. You see, if our choice is between the existence of God and that of naturalism or the idea that the material world is all that exists, there is no God. That is, uh, this is all that we see is the result of evolution. There is uh, at, at force laws of nature, but there's no God who speaks into it. Then ultimately, if that's all there is, naturalism or materialism, then there's no way to make sense of evil at all. In fact, even a discussion of evil doesn't make sense because if there is no God, there can be no ultimate evil. Think about that for a moment. What makes something evil? Well, because there's a law against it, because there's something that says this is wrong. Well, if you have a naturalistic system or if the material world is all that there is, who's the one who says this is wrong? Now, we have an instinct, a sense in which something is wrong, and that's because we've been created in the image of God, and that's a part of of God's common grace. But when we talk about evil, we have to admit that even a discussion of evil points back to the fact that there's a moral lawgiver, one who speaks and who says, this is evil or this is right. And so the problem of evil and the problem of suffering is an intellectual problem that philosophers debate but we know that it's far more than an intellectual problem. Often in the dark days of life, it's a very personal problem and a very emotional problem that all of us feel. Why does this horrible event occur? Why does God permit me to continue to suffer and to suffer and to suffer and to suffer? I've prayed and I've asked him to heal me. I've sought him for that. Why does God allow my loved one to continue on in this situation? Why did this tragedy have to take my child? Why this suicide? We understand these questions. Many of you feel them at a very personal level. The question of why. Let's go to Psalm 13. This is a psalm that we've looked at together before, but we're going to focus this morning on the first couple of verses. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So here David is the author of this psalm. And we aren't sure about the circumstances uh, when, when David wrote it. But as we talked about last week, David faced an awful lot of hardship. King Saul tried to kill him on multiple occasions. David lost a son in, in infancy. A daughter that was raped by her half-brother. A son who wanted to murder him. And then, of course, there's David's own sins. Think of the dark days that David knew. Again, we don't know the situation here exactly, but we understand that David was well acquainted with agony and suffering and pain. Let's look together uh, and think through these verses. As we, as we look at uh, these two verses, we'll see that though questions abound in the midst of suffering, God is the ultimate answer. Though questions abound in the midst of suffering, God is the ultimate answer. So let's consider uh, those ideas further. We see two realities about suffering in these two verses. First, our pain often leaves us with countless questions. Our pain often leaves us with, with countless questions. Here David is clearly hurting. He says, how long, O Lord? How long? And he repeats that question four times. In these two verses, adding, will you forget me forever? You see, David's trial seems to be unending. His trial seems to be absolutely unbearable. David's in agony. Have you been there? Have you been there where, where the only question that you could ask is how long? God, how long? How long will this night last? Some of you are there right now. Some of you were asking that question this morning when you got up or maybe last night when you couldn't sleep. And so that's where David was at. The question comes to our mind, how do you live with a God who is able to stop your pain but who doesn't? How do you live with a God like that? That's the, that's the question that we have to consider this morning. We can't answer all of these questions, but let's consider some truths from Scripture that can help us as we think about these things. First, let's talk about the origin of, of suffering. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, God created a beautiful world, a perfect world, and Adam and Eve were put in this garden, and it was an incredible place, a place that was perfect. There was, there was no pain or brokenness or suffering. Everything was right. And he said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And like us, what did they do? They went straight to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they rebelled against a good God. And at the moment Adam and Eve sinned, death came crashing down into the world. The judgment of God came crashing down. And now every one of us is broken by sin. Every one of our hearts is marred by sin. And not just that, the natural world is broken. The scriptures say that the, that the, that the world is groaning 
That's why we see things like tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis because all of creation is groaning out under the weight of of sin. So, all sin, or pardon me, all suffering is ultimately the result of sin. All suffering is ultimately the the result of a cosmic rebellion against the creator of the universe. Whether we want to admit that or not, that's the reality of it. And truth be told, every one of us, you and me, every one of us is a willing participant. Every one of us have ignored God's commands and we've said to God, I'll do what I please. And so when tempted to ask why the innocent suffer, we just need to be honest from a biblical perspective. That's an empty category. There are no people who are innocent ultimately. Every one of us in Adam, as Romans 5.12 indicates, as well as by our own choices, is sinful, broken in sin. Romans 3.23 says it like this, for all have sinned. For all have sinned. You see, the origin of evil and suffering is sin. Sin brought death and pain into an otherwise perfect world. So let's consider some of the biblical explanations for suffering. We know that God uses suffering redemptively. God uses suffering redemptively. Here are some examples. First, God uses suffering to test and to deepen our faith. James 1, 3-4 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So so what does the scripture say here? That God uses the trials and the hardships and the sufferings of life to deepen our faith. Now, I didn't get the notes done in time to put them in the bulletin, but but I have a lot of supporting scriptures for for the things that I'm going to be saying this morning that that I won't mention because of time. But in the back, in the foyer, there's there's some notes that have those scriptures. So if some of you are interested in that, you could pick those up later. But God uses suffering to test and deepen our faith. Second, God uses suffering to help us find our joy in Christ. He uses suffering to help us find our joy in Christ. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what does Paul say? Paul says that that the suffering that I've done, the things that I've lost in my life, they've helped me know him more. They've helped me enjoy him more, be closer to him. So sometimes God allows suffering into our lives to help us see that the things that we thought were so important aren't really that important at all. The things that we were building our lives around, the things that we were so intent on, man, I've got to get this and I've got to have that and I've got to do this and I've got to go there. Well, suffering has a way of helping us see that a lot of that stuff's not really that important at all. It helps us find our life and our joy in Christ. Third, God uses suffering to further the gospel. He uses suffering to further the gospel. 2 Corinthians 1, 5-6, Paul says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. 
And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we suffer. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that our suffering means your salvation. How does that work? Well, often when people see believers suffer and keep holding on to God in the midst of our sufferings, that becomes a powerful witness for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And it draws people to Jesus. So suffering can further the gospel. And not only that, fourth, God uses suffering to purify and to strengthen the church. He uses suffering to purify and to strengthen the church. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, I am suffering in all sorts of ways. We know that Paul endured all kinds of hardship and brokenness. But Paul says, I did it, and God's putting me through this because it's strengthening the church. Some of you are suffering now, and you're suffering in a way that challenges the rest of us, in a way that challenges your brothers and sisters in Christ because of your faith, because you keep holding on to the Lord, and it strengthens us. It makes our faith stronger, and it has a purifying and a strengthening effect on the church. Fifth, God uses our sufferings to make heaven even more glorious. He uses our sufferings to make heaven even more glorious. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying that when you suffer, heaven is going to be all the richer for it. Your experience of heaven is going to be greater. So some of you can say, you know what? It seems that I've had more than my share of suffering here on earth. It seems that, that I look around and I see other people and they don't seem to have to experience the kind of misery and agony that I've had to face. Well, I want you to know if you belong to Jesus, the scriptures are clear. Heaven will be greater for you. Heaven will be richer and a more wonderful experience. Only God can take the miseries of this life and make them and turn them into something that makes heaven more beautiful. But that's exactly what the word says that he does. Romans 8.18 is another example. Now my boy loves to climb. He loves to. He sees no good reason that he can't get on top of our refrigerator. None at all. And I can say to him, you get up there and, and I'll stop. I'm going to get a hold of you, boy. But he, he can't understand why I say, Landon, stay off of the refrigerator. He sees no good reason for it. But you immediately, you understand. You understand why I'm saying no. But brothers and sisters, because we don't understand does not mean there's not a good reason. Are you with me? Do you hear what we're saying here? Because, because I don't have the perspective. Because you don't have the perspective in the face of suffering. It does not mean that there's not a good reason. It does not mean that God's not working good. 
It doesn't make sense sometimes. I know I don't want to sound trite. This doesn't make suffering easy, but it helps us gain perspective. It helps us understand that sometimes God has a good plan and purpose even when we can't see, when we can't grasp it. Joseph is a wonderful biblical example of this. Remember, his brothers sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And they ended up saying, oh, let's show him mercy. Let's sell him as a slave. Sounds great, huh? Thank you for the mercy. And Joseph finds himself in a foreign nation among a people speaking a different tongue. He's in Egypt. Imagine how lonely it would be. He's a young man among a people that he does not know, among a language that he does not speak, and he finds himself a slave. This is the life you always dreamed of, right? And then what happens? Well, a man named Potiphar buys him. He begins to do well under Potiphar as Potiphar's servant. But then Potiphar's wife takes notice of him says, huh, this is not a bad-looking fellow. And she begins to seduce him. What does Joseph do? He flees every time. He walks in righteousness every time. Now remember, his brothers wanted to kill him. He's been sold into slavery, a place that he does not know, all alone, away from his family. He's a young man. And now his boss's wife, his master, if you will, well, she's pursuing him. And one particular day, she decided she was gonna she was gonna really push. And he ran, he ran as hard as he could. And guess what happens? She tells her husband, he tried to rape me. Well, what happens? Here's this Hebrew boy in, in Egypt. He's thrown in prison. He goes to prison. And days go by, and weeks go by. And months go by. And two years later, Joseph finds himself out of prison. Now, I want you to imagine that you're Joseph. Your brothers want to kill you. Instead, in a a show of mercy, they sell you as a slave. You land up in in a place that you don't know, being accused of something that you did not do for doing what was right. And you land in prison. And they after day, after day. Joseph couldn't understand that. We wouldn't either. But this is what happened. God raised Joseph up. And he became a a ruler under Pharaoh, the, the second most powerful man in Egypt. And God used Joseph to rescue not just the Egyptians, but people in that whole region from a horrible famine. And God did great work and and Joseph's family ended up coming to Egypt to to be saved from the famine and his brothers were scared that he was going to kill them after, after their dad died. And what did Joseph say in Genesis 50, 20? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so while we can't connect all the pieces often, that's true, brothers and sisters, it's true. What Satan meant for evil, what someone who harmed you meant for evil. Well, God, in a way that only God can do, can bring good. He can bring redemption. There are still long nights. And there are still long days. And yes, sometimes long, long years. But God can bring good. In John chapter 9, we see uh, the story of a, a man who was 
born blind. And Jesus' disciples said to him, who sinned? What, why, why is he blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And, and Jesus answered them in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so God had a good plan in the midst of, uh, of this blindness. God was going to reveal himself to this blind man. So we can't understand all of the horrible things we face, but if we belong to God, we can trust that he's working redemptively. But we also have to admit that suffering often remains a mystery. And we see this in the book of Job. You see in Job chapter 1, this dialogue between Satan and God, but Job had no idea. And all throughout the book of Job, as Job faces unbearable suffering, Job never has the full picture of what's happening. And so we just have to admit that suffering is often a mystery to us. So our pain, it leaves lots of questions in our heart. But these verses point to another reality about suffering. Second, God is the ultimate answer in the face of pain. God is the ultimate answer in the face of pain. Look at what David says in verse 1. How long, O Lord... To whom does David direct his question? His question is directed to God. He's looking to God. Why? Because David knew that only in God could any of this make sense at all. Now in John 6, many people heard the teachings of Jesus and they decided that his teachings were way, way too hard. And they began to turn away. And so Jesus said to his disciples, do you want to go as well? And in John 6, 68, Peter answered him, And said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You see, in the midst of agony and pain and suffering, there are a lot of questions. But the ultimate answer is found in knowing God. There's no other place to go, brothers and sisters. Still, all of our questions aren't going to be answered but we can trust him. We can trust that he'll help us in the midst of the pain. Now, the answers of the modern world are absolutely unsatisfying. As I, as I mentioned earlier, see, if naturalism is true, if the material world is all there is and there is no God, then the answers to suffering are absolutely and utterly heartbreaking. As one writer said it, modern man's answer, you are the accidental byproduct of nature a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence at all, and all you face is death. Now, if there is no God, brothers and sisters, what's more dismal than that? You see, if there is no God, then suffering becomes absolutely meaningless. There's there's no plan to redeem. There's no plan to work in the midst of, of brokenness. And ultimately, all of life becomes meaningless as well. No, for believers, we remember verses like Romans 8, 28, and 29, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we don't have all the answers But we know who is the answer. 
As God's children, we trust that God is indeed at work in our lives, that that he's moving in our lives, even in the face of a horrible pain and misery. We trust that God is at work when the devil throws the worst at us. We trust that God even uses these miseries, yes, even the devil himself for the good of his own children. We trust that when we're sinned against by someone, even in the most horrible of ways, that that evil action isn't outside of God's ability to accomplish good in the lives of his children. So right now, your life, it may feel like a puzzle, a puzzle with a lot of missing pieces. So much so, so many pieces missing, so many questions, that when you look at this puzzle The beauty of it's obscured. All you see are the missing pieces, the pain, the heartache. And you look at the puzzle, maybe perhaps it just seems ugly to you. Just a testimony of pain. But if you belong to him, one day the pieces are going to come together. All is going to be made right. And the puzzle of your life It's going to be beautiful indeed. And so we wait and we trust, even with pieces missing, even when we can't put it all together, knowing that one day, one day there will be a change. So what help and hope does the believer have now? Well, first, let's think about the incarnation. The incarnation. You see, the incarnation teaches us that God the Son left the glories of heaven, the wonders of heaven, and he came to walk alongside us in our pain. He too suffers. He came to earth and he suffered with us. Do you see how powerful that is? He didn't remain in heaven, aloof, far from our pain and suffering. No, he came and entered into this world of pain and heartache and suffering. You see, he comes to suffer with us because he cares. He is God with us. He is God with us. In fact, one day God is going to judge all evil and all suffering will stop and all evil will stop. And because Jesus came, we're not going to have to face God's judgment. You see, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He died. He was buried and he was raised to life. And he made a way for us to avoid the judgment of God. You see, when you turn from your sin and when you seek his forgiveness and when you call out to Jesus, he gives you life. He gives you eternal life. And he'll give you help and hope and strength even in the midst of your pain now. So if you are God's child, never ever say that he doesn't love you. Never say that. He came to suffer alongside you. Because of his undying love. So we may not know the answer. But brothers and sisters, we know what the answer is not. It is not that he doesn't love. He loves his children with an unending love. What other help and hope does the believer have? Well, let's think together, not just about the uh, incarnation, but let's think about the resurrection. You see... Jesus suffered agony. He was beaten bloody. His flesh was pierced. He was brutally nailed to the cross. His worn, beaten, dead body was placed in a tomb. This was a dark and dismal day. But death 
Death wasn't the end of the story. What happened? No, in the most remarkable event in human history, that dead body came back to life and death was conquered. And one day, all suffering, all suffering's going to end. This pain, this suffering, this agony, this death, it's not the end of the story. You see, death will not stay dead in Christ. Pain will not stay pain in Christ. Suffering will not stay suffering in Christ. One day, these will all turn to glory. Hallelujah. What a glorious, wonderful day that's going to be. So how do we live? Here are a few points to help you as you walk through pain. First, Trust Him even when you don't have all the answers. Trust Him. One day the puzzle, it'll be beautiful if you belong to Him. Second, God gives grace for the day, so don't worry about tomorrow's troubles today. God's, God gives grace for the day. In Matthew six thirty four, Jesus said, Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus saying to you and to me, Don't Start thinking, well, what's, what's this going to be like? Okay, well, in a year from now, what's this going to be? Or two years from now? Or what about next month? What, what about tomorrow? No, Jesus says, don't go there. I'm not giving you the ability to deal with all of that right now. I'm giving you the ability to deal with today. I'll give you grace for the day. And you trust me that when tomorrow comes, my grace will be there for you. That I'll give you enough grace to make it through another day and another day and another day. So don't borrow trouble. Refuse to worry about tomorrow. His grace will be sufficient, brothers and sisters. Third, focus on the good that God has given. In the midst of pain, it's so easy to just focus on the pain, and we miss so much of the beauty and the goodness of God. So focus on the good things that God has given. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. Fourth, seek to be a blessing to others. Seek to be a blessing to others, to be an encouragement to others in your pain. I can remember uh, in the, the last days of, of my dad's life, he, uh, he had COPD really bad, and he had come, uh, I guess, maybe with a spell that, was, that was, had really taken him down. And he was in a local hospital, a small-town hospital. And uh, the doctors came to the place where they said to us, Look, we, we feel like the best thing to do would, would be for him to go home and for, for hospice to be called. And oh, many of you have heard those words. You know what that feels like. But one of the nurses came to us and said, well, I just want to ask you guys to think about one possibility. There's a, a rehab hospital down in Fort Worth, and it focuses on issues with with uh, lung issues and there are pulmonologists on staff there. Maybe they can tweak medicine. Maybe they can come up with something that might just give them a little longer. And so would you guys think about that? And well, when those are your two choices, what do you do? Well, you, you, you go down to Fort Worth. So, so we went to this rehab hospital and we were there for around a week. It was a horrible experience. Of course, when you're going in the last days, there's a lot of pain a lot of challenge and all of that. And so we probably didn't have the, the best perspective. I, I get that. The doctors would come in the middle of the night at one or two in the morning uh, for, for a, a, a minute or two. It hardly seemed like care to us. Again, um, I, I admit our perspective was skewed, but it was just a terrible experience. 
And so we came to the place where we realized there was no help here. And it was time to take him home and go on hospice. And so we took him home uh, on a Friday, and he died that night at home. And that process, in the middle of that process, seeing my dad at times just struggle. Man, that hurts. You, you know, many of you know, you've seen it. You've walked that path. The question comes, why, God? Why, why did we even take this little excursion down to Fort Worth, for example? Why do we even have to go through that misery? Why couldn't he have just gone home for a few more days? But while we were there, there was a nurse who came to my sister and to me. And she said, your dad is not like the, the normal patients we see here. When a patient is as bad off as he is and this close to death, we don't see him, a guy with the kind of attitude he has. I see such a difference in him. Why? Because my dad was a strong believer in Christ. Through the misery and the suffering, he kept holding on. We had the opportunity to share the gospel with that nurse. She didn't trust Jesus at that point, and I, I don't know if she ever did. But I will tell you this. I can't connect all the pieces this morning. I'm trying to. But if you belong to Jesus... I promise you, God is at work for your good and for his good purposes, even in the midst of our darkest days. Join me in prayer.